This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Sarah Koshansky from 11FS, and in today's show, we're looking into all things catastrophe insurance. So uh, I'm not alone, of course. I'm joined by some fabulous guests. First up, we have Emil Pfeiffer, CEO and founder of Criso. How are you doing today, Emil? I'm good, thank you. I just came in here yesterday morning and have a good day, so definitely doing all right. Perfect. Making another appearance and becoming quite the regular, we also have FT Insurance correspondent Oliver Ralph. How are you doing today, Oliver? I'm very good, thanks. And of course, my co-host Nigel Walsh has finally returned from the sunny climes of California. How are you doing today, Nigel? I am non-catastrophic. Oh dear. Um, so before we get started, could I ask Emil, to, could you give us a quick summary of um, what Chryso do and your role there, please? Yeah, definitely. Yes, I founded this company approximately one and a half year ago. We very recently launched the first version. And what we're doing is that we're taking complex crisis management plans and we're like boiling them down to the absolute essence, which is what are you going to do when a catastrophe or a crisis hits? So we are very inspired by the notion in the aviation industry where they have, you know, checklists for engine failures and stuff like that. So you have actions and for those actions you have roles and that makes you super agile when you're responding to these complex situations because then you know when to improvise and when you shouldn't improvise and you have like a structured approach in how to respond to this. And finally, when you're using a platform such as ours, then you document everything, which can be super valuable when you're negotiating post-crisis with your insurance company because you can actually see um, at this time we did that and it was according to policy. So it can be a very strong tool in that negotiation process. So who are your end clients? Are they, are they the insurers? Are they the, the people who take them? Right now we are focused on the end user. We are going for those first. So we're, we're right now very focused on pharma um, because they're super regulated, extremely high cost of failure if you have one of these reactors that going down um, and they have plans already so it's like on an organizational level they have made the decision to have this as a priority and that's where we can come in and really make value because then we can take these plans and pinpoint the errors in them and then make them digital so they will actually be used because that's the problem today like you have these huge business continuity plans crisis management plans with this bind us the size of a mountain and we can take those and we can say, okay, what are you actually going to do if this IT is going down or if this, you know, whatever business function. Or whatever else. Yeah. It reminds me of the Carlsberg ad on TV where they had the customer complaints department with dust all over it. Maybe I'm showing my age here now. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mill. That's really, really useful to understand what you guys do and how you work. So first thing I want to do um, is get somebody or maybe all of you to give me your definitions of catastrophe insurance. Because when uh, producer Laura and I were first discussing the show, I sent her an email saying these guys are big in cat insurance. And she responded <laughs> with big cats. Where are we going with this? And that's entirely my fault, because outside of people who work in the insurance industry, the idea of catastrophe insurance is not very well known. People know car insurance or health insurance, but this is this is kind of a, a slightly trickier one to explain. So who wants to go first on that? 
So it just applies to um, largely natural catastrophes. We're talking about extreme weather scenarios, and we've seen quite a few of them in the past year. About a year ago, we had a whole series of hurricanes running through the Caribbean and the southern United States, causing a huge amount of damages for homeowners and businesses and individuals there. But it's not just hurricanes. It's also wildfires. Again, we've seen a lot of those this year and last year across the world, but again, largely in North America. So, And it can, can apply to earthquakes, tsunamis, any one of these big natural catastrophes that causes huge widespread losses for a lot of people. And who takes out catastrophe insurance? So that I mean that that's what it is, but I mean I don't have catastrophe insurance. I have house insurance under the understanding that if there is a catastrophe, my my home policy will cover that. So It will, but it does cover you for for instance if your house is flooded. So, and that can be a natural catastrophe if there's a huge flood in a river or a, a coastal flood. That's a natural catastrophe. And, and obviously, you're an insurance company and you've got a lot of customers next to a river and they all flood, then that's a, a big event for the insurance company. And so this is how the whole natural catastrophe reinsurance industry grows. The insurers pass on their risks of a big flood or storm onto somebody else. Those reinsurers then pass it on to somebody else up the chain and so on, and it all gets divided. I was going to say, this is the start of actually the chain of insurance, because we, we would all typically know our personal things that we get. We wouldn't necessarily, although you can get catas- catastrophe insurance, cap normally as you say is around nat cap but we've also seen more and more that are non-natural things like terrorism and everything else now being classified in the same sorts of ways for such an event that is non-natural you've also got things like catastrophe insurance indexes Um, people will start to talk about events that happen one in 25 or one in 50 or one in 200 and what these are are things that will take place or how you calculate the risk over a period of time for an event that we expect to take place one in every 25 years or one in 50 years and with all the weather issues last year in the US things happened quicker than everyone expected actually and helps change the rates for many of the carriers that were buying catastrophe insurance. So I think the important point to clarify there as well is that so whilst my house may be covered in the case of a catastrophe actually the the, the, the biggest I suppose the, the biggest vested interest in catastrophe insurance is the insurers themselves. So, you know, whoever provides my home insurance, Admiral AXA, whoever that is, they have to be reinsured because if one house burns down, then they can cover that. But if 30,000 houses burn down because there's a wildfire, then they have to have their own insurance to pay that out. Is that kind of how this works? Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see lots of the insurers on the on the, on the the event of an event, if that makes sense. Um, you'll see them work out at what point their reinsurance kicks in or not. And, and that's often something that you see measured and, and reported on a call, a call in the news to say uh, whilst this event was significant we didn't hit our, our reinsurance cap or not um, once that kicks in then you know it's been something quite significant perfect so i mean we've kind of defined two different types or we've gone into sort of two different sorts of catastrophe natural catastrophe which is one of the bigger ones um you just said that terrorism is the third. Um, I wonder, Emil, kind of if the industry you're looking at, some of what you were talking about there is actually more granular. So a, a, a nationwide IT failure or, you know, if you're looking at pharmaceuticals, then, you know, a, a, a factory um, exploding. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever might happen to a factory. So how do you define a catastrophe? Is that down to the insurer? Is that down to the reinsurer? You know, who, who creates that? Mm-hmm. So something that we actually, you know, I would say... A catastrophe is like a sudden negative event that requires your immediate attention. For a large organization, their normal business operations are not sufficient to handle these complex situations. So something else needs to take over. Typically, it's the crisis management team or the business continuity team that takes over and then resolves the situation. 
And you're always working under time constraint, both in crisis and catastrophes as well. And, you know, no actions will often have very severe consequences. So you need to like step up, you need to be dynamic and you need to respond fast and quickly. Whether it's, you know, a severe weather or it's IT failure, the main point is, okay, we need to get our people safe and we need to restore business functions. So actually the type of incident might not be that important, but like the outcome is super important. Like we need to be back on business. We need to have our employees and stuff like that. Perfect. So, you know, we, we've talked about these different sorts of catastrophe. The one thing that, you know, we talk about a lot on the show is how technology is changing how we approach this. So we can talk about how the weather is changing. We can talk about how, you know, international climate is changing about terrorism. But how is technology helping uh, this industry respond to the, to the changes around it and, you know, improving it generally? One of the big changes happening is in modelling. People have been modelling natural catastrophes for a long time, but as technology develops and becomes more powerful, it becomes easier for them to, to model better and to make ever more accurate predictions about what might happen. If you take the example of a, a river, and if that river floods, it used to be very basic, kind of, well, if a house is so close to the river, it's going to be flooded. Now the, the modelers can create much more accurate predictions about if there's a certain type of flood caused by a certain amount of rainfall, these properties are likely to flood to to whatever depth it is and that kind of thing and that, that means two things firstly uh, they can make more accurate predictions for the insurance companies about how much they need to charge in insurance premiums for different types of risks, different people living close to the river. But also they can do a lot more to advise the people who own those homes or properties what they need to be doing. If their property is at a high risk of, of being flooded, far more than one that's 10 metres up the road, well, this is what they can do to make themselves more resistant or resilient to floods. And so the 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 accumulation of the data and mapping techniques that, that's being done by some of the analytics providers really is helping insurance companies to be a lot more accurate and granular about where the risks of catastrophes lie. I think the, the big change or the big thing you've pointed out there, there is a frequency and the speed at which we can start to reprocess this stuff. So before they'd run their calculations on a regular basis, but now it's almost near real time. It's crunching so much data that we've we've now got access to, whether it's weather patterns or satellite or whatever else, that starts to start to see these effects. Um, look at earthquake, for example, or quake insurance. Some of the countries now that have sensors built in um, or deployed from out at sea through to land or whatever else capturing those and the tremors early to work out what that impact might be is absolutely essential to work out then what the impact will be going forward but the ability to do that at speed and pace is i think one of the things that technology has really changed so there's two parts of that then there's the technology we talk about quite a lot on the show which is this you know, the ability to take in data and process it quicker the analytics and then create a more accurate model on the other side of it you've actually got sort of physical technology if you like so internet of things devices um totally agree. i imagine uh, drones have a big part to play if talking about natural catastrophe if you're talking about getting a people safe, for example, a meal, I imagine that, you know, you don't want to send people in if a plant's blown up, but sending in a drone maybe... Does that, you know, we, is that, that feed into that as well? In, in most insurance cases, you'll talk about pre-event and post-event. So in the pre-event world, we'll measure, we'll monitor, we'll analyse, we'll understand. In the post-event, we'll then want to, to Emil's point, then implement the crisis management plan, understand business interruption, whatever else it might be. Drones have been actively used in many of the forest fires right now to work out if it's safe for firefighters to go in there, to work out um, whether there's people or livestock, whatever else. So there's lots of um, great examples, actually, of drones being used in this way, as well as satellite images. Um, the other thing we, of course, do is into when we get into the claims process and go, how do I now get claims for all these things? Uh, that could jump into parametric triggers. So actually, um, I think you mentioned on the show last week, a week before last, uh, while I was away, about puller insurance, about the... Um, 
the parametric triggers on a seed in case of a rainfall for farmers in Africa. Again, a great example of how technology is being used to deploy um, insurance uh, coverage to people in case of loss. And that can be applied to the same things here. And this is where I think technology can make a huge difference in places like Africa. Apparently only half of the world's population are covered by mainstream risk models at the moment. And there's a lot of the world's population that, that just isn't insured. And obviously the modelling companies tend to focus on theirs, those areas where insurance penetration is highest. Uh, and so that leaves a lot of people without without models and, and without cover. And, and if the models can start to cover areas in Africa, then there's, a, there's more of a chance that the insurance industry can price these risks properly. If you look last year, it was a big year for natural and man-made catastrophes. Couldn't Swiss Re, 337 billion dollars worth of economic losses only half less than half of that was covered by insurance so there's a huge gap there and people have lost out a lot and if if modeling and technology can create insurance products for these sorts of areas there's a chance that that sort of gap can be closed yeah definitely and i don't see like insurance companies have this history of being super good at identifying risks and mapping risks and we see these exponential technologies and we get better and better at manipulating and forecast these data so yeah i can definitely see how that is working out with insurance because we get huge amounts of data that we can now yeah use. we and we talk about this all the time about a huge amount of data i get frustrated as i'm sure we do in the fintech world or elsewhere we have all this stuff and we never seem to unlock it properly and i think that's where the insure techs and some of these new technology providers not really insure techs to be fair they're just good technology organizations with either you know edge-based computing or, or or whatever else to be able to do these things at this pace and speed to go we can help you unlock and get the insights i don't care if it's got 75 million variables i want to know what i should be doing now which then links back to the crisis management plan and say what am i actually going to go and execute because if you, if you have all this insight all this data and no insight it's pretty damn useless yeah and that's exactly the sentence that we're seeing out in the market that okay insurance companies actually want to come in super early in the value chain and help the organizations to build these business continuity plans and depending on how good these plans are you can adjust the premium based on that right and that's very progressive i would say for insurance companies to go in there and, and own that part of the value chain and one salty brokers are doing that as well and that creates huge opportunities because you can make yeah very good plans so, I mean, in terms of, we've sort of, let's flip that on its head, Bay, and sort of, um, all of you definitely touched on it here, but this is actually solving some wider problems as well. So, talking about, you know, half the world isn't actually insured, well, that's a problem for the people who are not insured. It's also a problem for the insurers who could go out and make money selling insurance to those people, presumably. So, that, that's one element, you know, what, what kind of problems is this helping us, plugs is helping us fill? Well, it, if you can get the right the right analytics and, and 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 sort of the right technology look at things like droughts in in africa and and you can assess whether a certain lack of rainfall means that there will be a, a drought further further down the line and crops are going to fail that means as soon as the rains have failed at that point the insurance can kick in and, and can pay out to the farmers so that they don't have to wait for the crops to fail they know in advance what's going to happen there's going to be money coming in and they can solve their problems as someone put it to me recently, the, it's the difference between paying people to, to keep their cows alive in the case of a drought or having them slaughter the cows because they need something to eat. It's that sort of, that sort of scenario. And if you can use technology to, to get this, this insurance money paid early enough, it can make a real difference to, to millions of people. And um, I think, you know, to, to build on that point that we're talking about recently, the, it's been on the news this week, actually, the deaths from Hurricane Maria, you know, last year, and nobody had any idea how many people had died until this week, and it's over a year ago. So presumably that affects it's things as simple as insurance and, you know, who gets the money and where it goes. So, you yeah. know, if you can have better 
uh, understanding of that, then that helps those individual people, also helps the insurance companies, presumably also with a reputational thing as well. So if they're yes. you know, not paying out when they should be or taking too long or to pay out. Or speed to payment, right? That's yeah. the biggest thing that you want to get back to pre-loss condition in a state that allows you to go and do something and keep your family safe. I'm, a, You know me, I'm a sucker for watching terrible uh, Hollywood movies. If you watch The Impossible about the tsunami that happened many years ago, at the very end of that, if people remember, I smiled at the end. I think it was you and McGregor and the family take off on a plane and thanks to Zurich Insurance for getting us out of there. So <laughs> I smile at the end of a movie, not because he's safe, because the insurance company's there doing something. But things like that, or things like The Day After Tomorrow, where they had this huge weather front over the US, I do really watch bad movies, don't I? Um, but all these things are about getting people back to safety as quickly as possible. I think it's, it's a really important point that the, the time it takes um, to get back to that point or understanding the loss at the first point, to Oliver's point, um, even, I know it's not necessarily a catastrophe, but even the Chinese port that blew up, it t- again, how long did it take before people actually worked out what the actual loss was after the event? I mean, it was a huge loss and the first estimates were so far out. It was a long time, yeah. a very long time. So, um, and are these realistic propositions? Are these things happening now? I mean, we, we kind of, well, whenever you talk about things like the Internet of Things and satellite imagery and drones, you know, there's, there's a sort of a... a 30-year scenario and then there's a tomorrow scenario. You know, is anybody actually doing this right now? Some of these things are happening now. So drones are being used to assess claims. Uh, when we had all those hurricanes going through the US last year, they used drones. There was a problem on the ground. There weren't enough loss adjusters to go around and visit all the properties. A lot of the insurance companies use drones and they're, they're doing that around the world quite it's a sort of standard procedure now. So there's there's a lot of that kind of thing. Likewise, um, in Africa and Asia, there are a growing number of insurance programs to try and create uh, these so-called parametric insurance policies where there's a trigger caused by weather or even the outbreak of an epidemic. Once there's an outbreak of an epidemic, the insurance policy pays out on that rather than waiting for the epidemic to really spread. So these things are really happening, but they're very small scale at the moment. And there's a, a lot of controversy about whether they're being done in the right way and who should be paying the premiums and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a slow development, but technology is being used. Without a doubt. And, and I guess the difference here, though, is it's being used in the existing process. We haven't actually fundamentally changed the way in which we buy a catastrophe insurance or the reinsurance process. We're just making the current process a bit more efficient. So, you know, is it a, a digital bank versus a neo bank, whatever you want to call them these days? They've just taken the old process and made it a bit more slick or made something that was manual and slow a lot more efficient. No one yet has redesigned the end-to-end process. And I think that will start to change going forward as well, potentially. And there's, there's, there's a need in the, the catastrophe insurance industry to make things more efficient, which is why it's, it's been ha- happening this way. The catastrophe insurance industry has had falling prices for a number of years. A lot of the companies are under pressure. Their, their, their profits have been falling. Returns have been falling. They need to find a way to cut costs. Uh, they need to find a way to, to make themselves more efficient. And one of the ways of doing that is by using more technology. A lot of capital has come in, and that's what's been driving prices. And there's nothing the insurance companies can do about that, so they need to make themselves more efficient, which has driven adoption of technology in some areas. Yeah, and we definitely see that as well. We see, as I mentioned before, these progressive insurers, where they go out and they sell their clients, okay, 20% of your premium here, you can invest that in these like software such as ours, or like mitigating Telltale mitigating, not sure of the English word. Yeah, mitigating services and such. And then they provide these services as well, or they bring organizations in that can help them with that. So we see like this progression where they're just moving from, yeah, here's your insurance product to actually, you know, really having this client-based relationship. So it comes back to that uh, subject that was one of um, Nigel's favorites, I know, but the idea of sort of value-added services. So we'll go in there and tell you that it's less likely that you're going to have a flood. If you do have a flood, you should be doing this. And, um, you know, 
at the end of the day, if none of that's worked, then yeah, we'll be an insurer. But that kind of package services totally in, in this as well. In fact, this man, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ralph, wrote a very good piece that was uh, uh, wildly accepted and, and shared and discussed around value-added service. <laughs> was that between us? us? No, no, no. It, actually, you know, we, we talked about it for quite a while and then I go away on holiday and he pops out this brilliant article about value-added services. And, and actually, it, it's, it sings all the things true of... Um, you know, especially in the personal line side, where we don't actually want to be an insurance company, we want to be something else and more more relevant. On the catastrophe side, I guess it's pretty special, so it, w- it wouldn't necessarily be this. Um, but the value added services piece is, is critical. The other thing I was going to say on the story on your last comment was, I think it was Inga Beale said um, some time back, sorry, the CEO of Lloyd's, that we needed some of these events to be able to put the rates back up in the market because the rates were getting to a stage where it was becoming too competitive and prices were going down as a result. So actually, they needed an event to remind people actually why insurance was there in the first place. Probably not the best time to do it, but, you know, it needs to be done. Yeah. So could you explain that a little bit more? Because when I picked up on what Oliver said about price as well. So this is one of the things that, um, again, I understand the price. We talk about you know this regularly. If I'm going to buy car insurance, I tend to buy the cheapest one because they're, they're all the same as far as I can tell. We know that's not true. We talked about it on Thin Tech Insiders, but... I will teach you one of these things. Um, but, but people but people do do it that way. But yeah, this, is a different, this is a different sort of insurance and a different model. So, Oliver, you know, when you say prices are being driven down, what do you, who, whose prices are being driven down? So and then what's, how is this changing that when you talk about an event? Yeah. There are a lot of different kind of prices, but across catastrophe insurance and particularly reinsurance, it's more easy to tell with reinsurance because it's kind of, uh, there's a small number of companies involved. But but for, for catastrophe reinsurance, prices have been falling a lot of t- for, for a number of years. And what's been happening is capital has come into the insurance industry. And if there's a lot of capital to back risks, that's like there being a lot of supply. There's, there's a static amount of demand. And so if there's lots of supply and static demand, prices fall. So we had all these hurricanes last year and everyone thought, great, finally, after years of prices falling, there's going to be all these things. It's going to be awful. People are going to be hurt. People are going to die. It's very sad. But silver lining, if you're an insurance company, they might be able to push rates up a little bit and ease the pressure on their profits. That widely didn't happen. Uh, the, the weight of all this capital coming in is such that prices bounced back in some of the worst affected lines of insurance. You know, if you were insuring one little area of Florida, maybe you were able to push prices up. But by and large, prices just sort of stayed bouncing along the bottom. I don't know if it is the bottom, but they stayed pretty flat, which has disappointed a lot of people and led a lot of people in the catastrophe insurance industry to think, oh, well, this isn't what we thought would happen. We thought prices would go up and our profits would go up and that would be fine. But as it turns out, prices haven't gone up. Our profits have been hit by all these claims and aren't going to recover much this year. And we've seen a lot of M&A activity in this area this year. And I think part of it has been driven by people rethinking their business models because they're not quite sure the prices are going to bounce back, even if there are a lot of catastrophes. So the capitals come into the reinsurance yeah, market. So the, the big and the, the, you know, I know who reinsurers are. They all put re in their name. It's really helpful. Yeah. Um, so they've 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 kind of built their cap. You know they they've got more money behind them, which means yeah. that when they're then selling insu- you know insurance to the insurers, this is reinsurance always blows my mind. Insurance to the insurers, you know they are cutting down on on prices. Yeah, the prices are falling. There's a lot more options if you're an insurance company buying reinsurance. There's a lot more options for you. You can negotiate a much harder price. Um, it also came on the back of a long period of which there aren't weren't really many bad natural catastrophes. And so prices fell for everybody and and some insurers didn't buy reinsurance at all. 
the price fell for everyone. Wow. <laughs> so you're an insurer, say, for example, I don't know, a home insurer in Florida, and you didn't bother to buy reinsurance, and then you got hit by yeah. three three hurricanes. Yeah, this, in year, a, this year you've bought a bit more right. insurance. You've rethought that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so, so then that insurer is the one who has to pay out to all those, ha- those, those house owners, but they're the people who become in, get into financial trouble as a result of it. But you've seen you've seen some of the major companies as well liquidise assets to go and pay for some of these events as well. So they really are taking things in a slightly dif- in a different way because of access to all this capital. You then get into things like ILS and different bonds and whatever else. I mean, there's the the, the chain of of the the supply chain for funds into into insurance industry has dramatically changed. I think it's fair to say, and reinsurance isn't now the only option. Um, it's one route to 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 back up, but uh, but outside that, there's loads of other things that have made life more difficult for the reinsurers in some instances, but again, better or more competitive for everyone else to go play with. Uh, yeah, so I mean, the, the other interesting thing that we've mentioned, um, just and I kind of want to bring it back to kind of where we're using technology here. So you're talking about rethinking of business models. My understanding of it is when you're talking about catastrophe insurance, there are a lot of people involved. So it's not me taking out an insurance policy with an insurer, the reinsurance. So if you're, I don't know, a big insurer, do you just get your reinsurance from one company? Do you spread that across the board? Because my understanding of it is there's lots of different people involved in all these policies. Presumably technology has a huge part to play there and kind of streamlining how these things work it does you you spread you spread the money across a vast number of people you brokers reinsurance brokers their friends other brokers they they pass it on <laughs> to a friends. whole they're friends with their friends they are definitely friends. Definitely, friends. <laughs> definitely friends they pass it on to a whole string of other reinsurers then the reinsurers buy their own reinsurance <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating it's, it goes on and on and, on. and there is a huge opportunity to for, for technology to come in and cut out a vast vast chunks of this chain and and say you know the the person with the building in florida connect them more directly with the capital that, that actually is backing that risk i probably shouldn't but going back to our good friend edward lloyd back in whenever it was back in uh, lloyd's of london the whole concept of underwriting was back and i still smile every time i learn this or hear it was the underwriting concept is you put your name under under underwritten the person that was above you so you literally shared the risk down and down and down on the insurance slip and that's how the whole concept of underwriting and I kicked off and I still smile. I know you're looking at it in a really terrible way. No, no, it's only because I've heard this story several times. Um, I, I do like I do like the li- how literal insurance is. And one of the things I love about it is how old everything is. So, you know, we've just talked about how the fact, I think we can go back to this point, a sensible point, that the actual structure of insurance has not changed. We're just making things more efficient. Um, do, you, do you foresee a future whereby we might start to see that move the needle? So we might start to see different business models emerging, different different you know, cutting maybe some of the people out, the middlemen out. Well, this is the point that Oliver's making about reinsurance. In theory, if you've got access to capital other than reinsurers, you can get money elsewhere at a different rate and it's better for your business, then there is an opportunity to do it. In the same way that reinsurers that are partnering with some of the startups to go after some of the direct market can cut out the primary carriers, which are the guys that you and I know as high street brands that will advertise on PCWs or elsewhere. So it's almost like a dog-eat-dog-eat-dog world and everyone's trying to cut out the next piece to work out where the end customer's going to buy from. I mean, the you know, the interesting thing here from the perspective of the insurtechs, if we want to, to call yeah, your company that, Emil, is um, you're, you're doing things differently, but for now you're doing the same things more efficiently. Where, what would be next for you? What would be the next ideal step in so far as how, you, how you're running your company? You know, what, once you've got this business built up and then what's next? How do you, where do you go from that? Yeah, I so right now we have like the core product where we can take these planes and we can digitize them. And that creates like some efficiency and we can, you know, much faster escalate our planes. And that's a great start. So the next step is we'll build like an app store for all kinds of different products that can be customized to the individual or 
organizations. So the next one, I think, will be an exercise module where we can gamify this whole experience because we know that probably the most important thing you can do to prepare for the unwanted is to do these tabletop exercises and to include senior management. But reality also strikes and you don't always get the chance as a CFO of a large bank to actually attend these things. So that's a huge problem that organizations are actually not training, especially because they can probably even get lower premiums because they're doing something extra to mitigate these risks by training. So we want to create a gamified, like dilemma approach where you go through these different scenarios. And that's the first step. And the next step is to build when we have the data from all the different action-based plans, we will be pretty knowledgeable how these plans are. So you can get recommendations. Hey, we can see this other company. They also added these five tasks in case of an earthquake. Would you like to add them to your plan as well? And stuff like that. We're a little, we're a little bit off topic, but but it's a, it's a fair link to back to, to back to what you're doing. And that is, in the event of a terrorism or cyber attack, how do we get our business back on track as quickly as possible? And how, the, how is that off topic? Because that's still a catastrophe by our definition. Cyber doesn't, in my mind, cyber doesn't necessarily fit straight into catastrophe. I would have terrorism in there, but not cyber. It's it's a definite. I mean, Oliver, correct me if I'm wrong. There's definitely it's a definite defined market for cyber in its own instance right now it's a huge market space i think london attracts circa 30 percent or 28 percent of of global cyber premiums right now it's a specific area and i think catastrophe is very very different to that terrorism still fits into catastrophe cyber is very different that you am i right wrong argue no what if it's a terrorist uh, causing a cyber attack oh that's that's well, Bruce Willis Die Hard 4 yeah well it's uh, <laughs> i've not seen that film it's really bad <laughs> There's a lot of grey areas. One thing you can say about cyber is, uh, is that um, ins- cyber insurance companies are trying to write cyber specifically out of other types of policies. Right. So cyber attacks are covered by cyber insurance policies. They're not included by accident in your catastrophe insurance policies. Right. So they're trying to, to split it out a bit more. Terrorism is also, for some people, a slightly different market as well. Think, but think, think about terrorism or cyber attack on a national power station or a nuclear power station. You have a very different conversation. Well, that's what I was just about to say, Emil. If you're talking about a, a pharmaceutical industry and there is one company that makes one drug in the world and that company goes down, surely then we're into catastrophe. We go back to epidemics. Different. Definitely would be a catastrophe, right? And you can definitely see your point that maybe it's not a catastrophe because it's not it's not like physics, that's not like one clear definition of what yeah. it is. Like it's like more humanitarian, everybody has their own version of how it is. That's definitely something that we are experiencing. But we are conducting these business uh, impact assessments out in the organizations and we are asking, okay, so what would what would happen that would enable you not to do your work here? Like what what do you fear the most? And everybody, like, across all different units, not even farmers, but also other organizations, they said IT. If IT goes down, I'll not be able to do my work. So it's just, if we have this risk map, it's a a huge part of, you know, what people fear. And, yeah, so it has severe impacts because you you very recently had it to a Danish shipping company called Mask. They had a huge hacking attack, and they could literally not take orders. And they didn't have procedures on how should we take orders. And And they're the world's biggest shipping company, are they not? Yeah, so it was like... They were completely shunned out and they had to use like WhatsApp and shouting and so um Did you did you see the thing in Gatwick the other day where the Gatwick airport went down and there's people with whiteboards writing on whiteboards? I saw that. I thought, my God, that's, that's old school. That's, that's old, school. old school. Yeah, can you imagine it? that? My God, thank God I wasn't going through there that time. Did so they not bring out a town cry with a bell. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye, <laughs> oh, the eleven thirty flight to Berlin. I think that's what Samuel's saying is actually has to happen without these plans. Um, um but presumably events like that also and then kind of what you were saying, Emil, about the 
gamification in the Alps is actually going back to what I was talking about raising awareness. So if we had this kind of lull where people were like, we don't actually need this catastrophe insurance. And then all of a sudden they were like, whoa, 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 maybe we do. So maybe there's a raising awareness of the cyber elements and the terrorism. And the, the other thing that's playing into this now is climate change. And that the question of what what is that doing to natural catastrophes? We know there were a lot of catastrophes last year. Were they caused by climate change? I don't know. And there's some believe climate change isn't actually happening. Some people would argue that it isn't happening at all. Others would argue that all we're of this not is having it. that debate, gentlemen. <laughs> climate but, change is definitely happening. Global warming is happening. But what it does is that it makes catastrophes harder to predict. Just when the modelling might be getting to grips with what the old reality was, there is a new reality which is more volatile and potentially harder to predict. And so that will, will make things... But we keep setting new records. Again. We had the hottest day in Europe for the, uh, uh, since records started, I think, a couple of weeks back. Uh, it was like 40-something degrees, wasn't it, in Europe? And it keeps changing. And all those things have an impact on our catastrophe tables, whatever else that we expect as a result of it. In the UK, people started talking about, with all this dry weather then substance claims will go up as a result because there's no water in the ground and buildings will start to move so actually all these things they they have a really important knock-on effect to the overall insurance industry not just personal lines but throughout the whole chain sorry you said substance claims and sorry. i think you meant subsidence but i heard substance and i was like wow that's a route i did not see coming but... very well spotted <laughs> substance claims um so i mean that that and that kind of leads us that talk of climate change leads us to kind of the the question i like to ask everybody when we get to the end of this round tables is that okay so what's next for the catastrophe industry and the crisis industry either what you think is going to happen or what you'd really like to see happen so it sounds like we think there are going to have to be changes partly because the way the, the industry is going in terms of price etc and partly because you know climate change terrorism all those things what what what, what impact is that going to have and and if possible you know is it going to happen anytime soon or is this kind of like we'd love to see but it's going to take 20 years what i'd like to see is better modeling for parts of the world that have a lot of natural catastrophes but are not well covered by models at the moment. If you live in Florida, there's hundreds of people trying to model what's happening to your house. If you live in, in parts of Asia, there's very few people doing that. So it would be nice to see better modelling and hence more access to insurance for those areas of the world. Would it be fair to say that the rich parts of the world are quite covered and the poorer parts of the world are not covered? That's pretty fair, yeah. yeah. But that's supply and demand. They're going to be the guys that are buying the insurance. Um, for me, I think this falls into my evolutionary camp. I talk a lot about evolution and revolution in insurance. This is an evolutionary step. Things will naturally get better and better and better through technology. I can't see yet, and I haven't looked at it in great detail, but I can't see yet a revolution taking place where the business model of catastrophe insurance changes or anything like that. I think the inputs that we get and then how we react, whether it's use of a, um, a stronger business interruption plan or elsewhere, uh, will get better, but it's an evolutionary step. Yeah, definitely. And now what we like, what we can bring in is the, the response. And that's what we're really good at. So I really hope to see that this becomes more prioritized because what you need when you're dealing with these situations is a step-by-step approach and not necessarily like we call it like when you're scouting for icebergs and when you actually hit the iceberg. Yeah. So I hope we can create a mindset where you will have be very well prepared for planning for these, you know, icebergs when you hit them. So remember taking back to 9-11 where, you know, that was definitely like a black swan. Nobody had like calculated for that. But if you had a very good plan for earthquake, like how many percentage of those actions would still be relevant. So I think like good planning can get organizations a very long way, maybe 50% of the way from the beginning. And that creates a lot of value, both societal and from the organizations. 
Perfect. Well, that rounds up this discussion. Thank you so much to everyone for joining me. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, Emil, do you have a website, a Twitter handle? Yeah, uh, you can add me on LinkedIn. Feel free to do so. And uh, our website is chryso.dk. So, and I, my email is there as well. So, yeah, feel free to reach out. Would you like to spell chryso for our listeners? Yeah, K-R-I-Z-O. And that's Esperanto for crisis. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, wait, really? Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Thank you. Um, Oliver, where can people find you? Uh, so I tweet at, at Oliver underscore Ralph and my articles are on FT.com. Perfect. And Nigel? At Nigel Walsh on Twitter. And you can find me at Sarah Koshansky on Twitter also. Next, we caught up with Jason Futis, CEO of Insure Data, to tell us all about their catastrophe insurance offering. Welcome to InsureTech Insider. I'm Sarah Koshansky, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jason Futis, CEO of InsureData. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for coming back. Um, can you just start by reminding us what it is InsureData is and, and what the company does, basically? Yeah, so InsureData is a platform for insurers and reinsurers to create augmented property information uh, with high-resolution, peril-relevant attribute data so that it's uh, much more accurate when they use it for analytics and uh, cat modeling, for example. Ah, so speaking of cat modeling, this week's episode is uh, focusing on the catastrophe insurance industry. So where does what you do intersect with that industry specifically? Can you, can you give us a little bit more detail on that? Yeah, so, so we, we've created technology that allows users, our clients, to use our technology in their workflow today. And the workflow today is focused on a number of key analytics, uh, one of those very much focused on catastrophe modeling. So uh, catastrophe models take as their core input uh, exposure information through the schedule of values that uh, move around the industry. And our technology fits directly into that process, uh, providing the or creating and providing the augmented exposure information. What part of what you're doing relies on sort of new technologies and, and new ways of doing things? Well, we, we're creating new ways of doing things and new technology. And um, a, a part of that, of course, is then reliant on other uh, technology and to some degree data as well. Cat modeling has been around forever. And the science and the data behind that is advancing and has advanced to an extraordinary resolution. So the catastrophe models today are available at an incredible resolution, but the exposure information that they consume um, hasn't advanced. And, and that's what we do. Uh, we provide that high resolution uh, exposure information. And in order to do that, we access and create a wide range of um, technologies ourselves. So machine learning is probably one uh, that is uh, most used um, in our R&D and our processes and uh, has the potential for a huge impact on uh, the model loss estimates, for example, in, in catastrophe insurance. So basically, it, it helps um, better predict what the loss might be were a certain event to occur. Yes. Yeah. So th there are two key elements. One is to understand exactly where the exposure is um, when you're uh, assessing or when an insurer or reinsurer is assessing the, the catastrophic potential loss. Um, and then the other is once you actually understand where the exposure is, is what is the exposure? And if you think of properties, that includes a, a wide range of attributes. So, for example, understanding if you're writing um, catastrophic flood cover, 
understanding where water could enter the building. It, it sounds obvious, um, but it's actually very difficult to understand that. And uh, for most cases, most insurance now, that's not known, but that's a key attribute. And so that's what we do. We provide that attribute once we have a detailed understanding of where the exposure location is, which we also create. So are there, so one, one of the things you just mentioned there, you know, relates to flooding. Uh, one of the things we, we discussed uh, in our roundtable was the fact that climate change and sort of natural disasters are sort of forcing a rethink of the catastrophe insurance industry. Is, is that something that you would agree with? Um, and is that something that kind of where your technology can help, uh, you know, b- b- insurers better cope with the way that things are changing? Yeah, for sure. So, so I think there's two elements, right? One, one is um, when events occur, whether they're catastrophic or not, everyone knows about them very quickly. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the rate of occurrence is increasing, but certainly our understanding of them um, and, and the way they're communicated globally is accelerating uh, almost exponentially. Um, when it comes to climate change, from our perspective, it's relevant in that uh, there's much more focus on the cash, catastrophe analytics and other analytics that uh, occur within insurance. Um, and what we do is we will actually, by providing the data we provide, which is the precise location of a building plus the relevant attribute data, we will provide insurers and, and reinsurers with the information that allows them to better price and reserve for whatever is changing, including climate change. Uh, and that can be um, seasonal impacts, you know, through one or, or multiple hurricane seasons. And then, of course, over a much longer time frame as well. So uh, I guess the, the, the question then is, you know, what, what are the what other opportunities out there for, for changing this industry? What, you know, what, what other one of the things that we talk about quite a lot is a lot of what happens with um, catastrophe insurance and other insurances that not a lot has actually changed in how you create insurance. It's just the data you're using helps you make that more accurate. You, you know, what are the other opportunities here for for improving the space and, and improving coverage. Um, for example, one of the things that you know we discussed in the roundtable was that technology today allows catastrophe insurance to cover a much a greater part of the world. So demographics that previously historically would have been underserved, particularly in, in places like Africa, um, actually now technology allows those people to be insured. Uh, you know, is is there anything? A, did you, would you like to build on that? Or, or and B, is there anything else you think that there are opportunities here that technology allows um, this area of insurance to develop? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, and there's a whole range of technologies. And of course, we believe we're key to the coverage everywhere for all perils in, in that if you don't understand where your risk is and what your risk is, then, uh, you know, you need to be very careful when you're writing that risk. And so from that perspective, and then just generally thinking about how insurance is developing, the ability now to solve, you know, the insurance gap is increasing uh, considerably. And I would look at areas that are profoundly underinsured, but that are also simultaneously key to, to components like food security. Uh, and so using technology to be able to scale geographically to any territory for any peril is absolutely something that's changing. And insurers and reinsurers are, are very much embracing that change. So if you think then there's no sort of natural boundary uh, because of the technology uh, doesn't care about those political boundaries um, or other boundaries for that matter and the way we're seeing this is in an accelerated ability to absorb the new technology into core underwriting and risk management processes 
So, uh, you know, if you think again, going back to catastrophe models, you know, really that took a decade or two to become very widely used within the industry. And, and the workflows were built around that. Now what you have with technology, uh, and, I, and I think of things like platforms, API, for example, um, you can actually create solutions um, within a, a massively accelerated and therefore shortened um, cycle. So you know, if, if you need to solve a problem today for a certain situation in a certain country where there's poor coverage, you know, now you could do it within I mean, days, weeks, months, you know, as opposed to years or decades that we saw previously. And that's, that has a huge impact on the potential to expand coverage to those areas that really need it. And one of the, the components that we think is actually pretty exciting, and, and certainly from a, a flood perspective, uh, it's, it's key and has been used within um, catastrophe bond analysis for many years is parametric coverage. And, uh, and so one, that's one of the areas where I see that um, generally for the industry being a key way of expanding coverage globally. And there are some great companies who are starting up now entirely focused on parametric flood cover. And we see that increasing. And so you take it from the catastrophe bond level, which is obviously at the portfolio level, down to an individual policy, and that could even be micro insurance, but it's it's on a parametric basis, and so it's much easier to understand whether it's going to pay out or not. And the payout is, you know, exponentially faster than the typical sort of indemnity payout that you see today. Those things combined have a huge potential impact. And I'm confident they will have an impact on coverage globally. And just for the sake of some of our, our listeners, for keeping it because we try and keep things as high level as possible, parametric insurance—that's where um, an event automatically triggers something next along the uh, towards a payout. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so it's the intensity of the event that triggers the payout, as opposed to today, uh, the event intensity will either create a loss and you're indemnified against that loss, and the indemnification process means you, as an insured. Uh, or a reinsured, I guess, for a, a bond if it's an indemnity bond. But you have to prove that you've had that loss, and then you go through this sort of claims process. And that, that can literally take weeks, months, or at the portfolio level, longer. Uh, whereas parametric, you get a certain intensity of event. You may have had no loss, or you may have had a huge loss, uh, but you will get the payout based on that intensity. And it can happen immediately, literally through technology. Um, it, can, it can happen um, with no delay at all. Perfect. And um, what's next for, for you guys for, for Insure Data specifically? Is there anything um, exciting on your horizon? Uh, we, we feel pretty much everything feels exciting. Um, it's, it's about choosing uh, the right steps. But yeah, so there's a number of things that, that we're doing now, which we are very excited about. Um, you know, we've been very focused on flood to start with. Uh, we now have our fully functioning um, flood technology available and we're moving that not only into other territories. Um, so as of today, we've actually analysed exposures in over 80 countries, but we're now moving into other perils. So we've already done analysis that includes flood for uh, coastal and uh, inland. Uh, and now we've done analysis for terrorism and windstorm using our core exposure technology. And then, you know, from day one, our plan was to build a platform, and that's what we did. And so that's the other thing we're looking at is where we can partner with other companies 
um, who are keen to use our technology, but bringing in their own expertise to create a different type of solution. That that we feel is is very exciting and is at the heart of that um, uh, platform strategy. Perfect. And if people want to find out more about all these um, exciting things, where can where can they find you? Do you have a website or a Twitter handle you'd like people to know about? We do. We do indeed have a website. Um, that's probably a good starting point. So insuredata.io. Um, and there's obviously our contact details there and a link to our dev portal um, for those more interested to understand about the API and our platform. Thank you so much, Jason. And uh, thank you for joining us on InsureTech Insider. Next, we caught up with Barney Shawball, a partner at Nafila. Welcome to the show, Barney. Thank you. Well, how I'd like to start this uh, interview is if you could tell us a little bit about Nafila, uh, you know, the company, what it does and what it is you do there. Sure. Well, thanks again for taking the time to have us on today. We appreciate it. Nafila is an asset manager that acts like a reinsurance company. We've been operating for 20 years. We manage about $12.5 billion of investor capital, which is largely from pension funds around the world. And we use that capital to take risk. And that historically has been mostly property catastrophe risk, the risk of hurricane or earthquake or some other large event impacting the insurance industry. And it has also included weather risk, so high or low wind for a wind farm, temperature, rainfall. And the reason for that uh, is twofold. One is that there are certain risks that the insurance industry has trouble handling at scale. There's just not enough capital for hurricane risk in Miami, for example, or earthquake risk in California. Very difficult to diversify away from given their size or products where there really just hasn't been a lot of adoption by the insurance industry in the past, like protection against low rainfall for a hydroelectric plant. So we offer those products on behalf of our investors. And our investors like those risks because they feel like they're paid a fair return for those risks, but also because they're not correlated with broader financial markets. So whatever happens in the stock market or to venture capital or to commodity prices, obviously it doesn't make it colder or warmer or cause the wind to blow. And they like holding something like that in their portfolio. So that's what we do. That's largely what I do as well. I joined the firm in 2004. I look after some of our relationships with investors, but primarily since moving to California eight years ago, I look after an internal labs area within Nafila, which includes our Research and development teams includes things like activity in the insurtech space and other new products and business development ideas. Perfect. So um, you mentioned uh, catastrophe insurance and weather insurance there. Th- this episode um, today is, is sort of we're focusing um, on catastrophe insurance. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you do in that particular area? Sure. So the whole reason that this asset class or businesses like ours began was that Insurance and reinsurance companies found there was too much of that risk really for them to digest. And so we wanted to present, and I was a banker that worked on the first catastrophe bond as an example, we wanted to see if there was a way to take that risk and transfer it out of the insurance industry into broader capital markets. We thought it would be attractive to investors for the reasons that I mentioned. We thought that additional capacity could really help to even out some of the trouble spots within the industry. And so that's really the basis for the idea of transferring risk, not just to conventional insurance and reinsurance companies, but packaging it in one form or another, security or a direct investment in a fund 
to make sure that you then can bring that additional capital to bear to this larger scale societal problem. So diversifying the sources of capital in the industry. That's right. So given that, you know, that's a large part of, of what you guys do, um, can you can you give me kind of like your, and you mentioned as well that you work in the area of the lab and InsureTech, can you give us an idea of where you think technology is really changing this industry? So, you know, on the on the catastrophe insurance side, wh- wh- what types of technology are having an impact and, and, and what impact are they having? Sure. So... One of the reasons that this transfer of risk was a bit was available or achievable in the first place was the advent of technology. So for example, some of my colleagues on the research side worked at the catastrophe modeling firms. So the availability of software from companies that started in the 80s and early 90s to quantify that risk was really a key in being able to securitize and rate and pass along that risk. If you take something that you just can't put into numbers, it's very difficult to get somebody to assess and price and take that risk. So from the earliest days of our business, new technology was a real enabler. And that's continued to be the case. And really the way that we see, and I look after this with a colleague of mine named Pascal Carcenti, who used to work at AIR, the way that we see InsureTech being useful in this business, there's really three components to it. One is new distribution sources. So as we all know, we've seen the ads for and the press about new companies distributing products online. And if they have a new way to access customers, a new way to quantify risk or new lenses through which to think about risk, that can be interesting. There are a lot of those companies, as we all know. What is rarer, uh, and we think more important, frankly, are new ways to think about how to understand risk better information about buildings, better information about events, more sensors to see how weather is evolving and how climate is evolving. So all of those kinds of tools really helping buyers of protection, as well as people like us who are sellers of protection, understand risk and quantify it. That's hugely important. And then thirdly, really just the plumbing around the insurance industry. I think we all know that it hasn't historically been the most efficient industry and seeing what has happened on the fintech side and credit with banks, anything that can make what has historically been a very manual process industry become a little bit more efficient is also good. So when we're looking at the insure tech space, we're thinking about distribution, quantification, and then really just efficiency. And do you think about that as something that ties into what you're doing on kind of a day-to-day basis? Or is this something that you guys have as a sort of a separate innovation unit, if you like? Because it's interesting to see the way that some of the larger players in the space are engaging with InsureTech. So some are thinking, okay, we could partner with them. And, you know, for example, you partner with a, as you mentioned, like a drone company that would help you um, assess the damage after a catastrophe versus using it as, you know, given given what your background is, you know, another line of investment, I suppose. That's right. It, obviously, there are different approaches to this. There are some insurance and reinsurance companies who want to partner. There are some who want to invest as much money as they can and see if perhaps they can develop a new line of business. We are by nature less of an investor. The funds that we raise from our LPs, our investors, can't really be used to speculate on the venture capital future of a bunch of startups. But what we do think we can offer and and what's important to us is not just partnering in a way where you say, show me your drone technology and we'll see if it's useful, but sitting down with somebody who has a new idea in any one of those three areas and saying, here's our perspective. We have 
been through the experience of trying to introduce something new into the insurance and reinsurance industry. We think we have a good handle on the sensitivities and the advantages and disadvantages of different approaches. And that's really been very fruitful for us is talking with smart, young, entrepreneurial men and women who have good ideas and seeing if we can help them accelerate that process. Um, and so obviously new technology is driving change in the industry from one um, arm. As you pointed out, the insurance industry has not been particularly um shall we say, as fast maybe as some other industries at, at picking up um, the use of new technologies. Uh, do you think that anything is going to change that in the near future? One of the things that's come up in our roundtable is the um, impact of things like climate change is actually is actually f- almost a bigger driver some, sometimes in this area. And then because of climate change and because, or for example, because those big events are becoming more frequent, people are looking at how to deal with them and that's pushing them onto technology. Is that something you would agree with? We would agree with that. I think the climate change topic is a very difficult one for the industry to grapple with. You've seen some people who are being thoughtful and proactive, but unfortunately, you've seen a lot more people who like to talk about it or put out reports about it and don't really then factor that into their business practices. I think you're right that there's a longer term pressure that arises from large scale changes in the industry, of which climate change is one. But I do think, or or our view at least at Nafila, is that a more powerful driver is just the short-term fundamental changes to the economics of the insurance and reinsurance business, where you're seeing people have to think much more about the expense side of the business as the excess returns from some lines go away, or as people realize that fundamentally a lot of lines of insurance business are break-even at best. And so if you can apply technology to remove expense from how the industry does business, that offers, that opens the door to a lot of other opportunities. So much as I would like to believe that the industry is looking at longer term strategy and making decisions accordingly, and, and some people certainly are, I think a more powerful pressure, and you've seen a lot of this in the Lloyd's market, for example, recently, are companies and stakeholders within those companies looking at their just core economics of their business and saying, this has to change. We have to do better. So if I were to ask you what's next for the catastrophe insurance industry or the insurance industry more broadly, um, do you think that it is going to be changes in business models, you know, more efficiency coming in and, and maybe some of those companies that are, have failed to see that quickly enough struggling? Or, you know, do you think it's going to be um, more diversification, more personalization of products? You know, one of the things we said in our round table as well, particularly in the catastrophe insurance industry, is that one of the ways that people are diversifying is by finding ways to insure, provide insurance to, to demographics that have previously not been able to get it. So, for example, my catastrophe insurance about droughts in Africa, which has not necessarily historically been covered. Um, which, you know, which way do you see it going? Do you, do you see more of that diversification going next? Or do you see, if you know, more of a drive towards efficiency? Or do you think we're going to see a combination of the two? It will definitely be a combination of the two. We've been a a big believer in and a big sponsor of those diversification efforts. We worked on a huge rainfall transaction, for example, in Uruguay years ago with the World Bank at a sovereign level. Uh, We've been a sponsor of a number of startups, one called the Climate Corporation in the United States, uh, one called World Cover, which operates in Africa, uh, which are trying to do what you described, offer new products which haven't been available using new technology. We're big believers in that movement. But the scale of that movement is still very small. 
even if all of those companies were successful or started to transfer a meaningful amount of the drought risk in Africa, India, and China, when you compare that to the existing premium volume of the industry, that's not going to double that, or certainly not in the near term. So while we think that's exciting and important, enabling risk transfer in places that just don't have that capability right now at a sovereign level or at an individual farmer level is obviously hugely important. That's not necessarily going to be as powerful as looking at the existing lines of business and determining how do you do those more efficiently. And, you know, we believe that you'll see winners and losers in that like you do in all industry adaptations in the same way that in the fintech space, some banks are aggressive adopters of new technology and others either hope to ignore it or hope that they can adopt it once it's been determined what the new standard is. I'm sure we'll see the same in insurance. And we have a somewhat unique vantage point in that the biggest change in the reinsurance industry in the last 20 years has been the addition of external capital. We've watched that whole development over time. We've seen people who adopted it aggressively and benefited from it, and we've seen others who ignored it and paid the price for that. So we do have some perspective having watched one wave of change come through the business and hopefully have learned some lessons that are applicable to this next wave of change. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. That's been really insightful. And it's been really interesting to get a slightly different perspective on this because um, a lot of the people we speak to tend to be either the very small insure techs or the more traditional insurance players. So so gr- really great to have you on. Really, you know, thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, where can people find out more about you and the filler if they're interested in some of the things you said? Do you have a Twitter handle or a website, anything like that you'd like to share with us? Uh, so we do. Our website is Nafila dot com, N-E-P-H-I-L-A, named after a spider that's native to Bermuda that local folklore has it can predict when hurricanes are coming. Uh, So you can find more about us there uh, or on publications like Artemis, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Artemis.bm, which is published out of London by somebody who's covered this industry for a long time. And, you know, I think there's a lot more information now available about sectors like this or our sector and and how it's impacting the broader insurance market. But thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to describe our unique view. And we're excited about what the future holds. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to everyone for joining me. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com.